trying to be good at everything is nearly impossible. Trying to figure out how to improve upon the things that make you happy and have value to the organization is really where you should focus. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 106. Today we're talking about vision and imaging. Our guest this week is Greg Hollows, the VP of Product Strategy at Edmund Optics, a group that's been on the cutting edge of optical and imaging technology for over 80 years. So we talk a lot about robotics and automation technology on this show, but honestly, I haven't done a great job of doing vision technologies justice. So here are three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we'll get into some base definitions around what vision and optics do for the manufacturing industry, and Greg will take us back to the beginning of his career and tell us how these technologies have evolved over the past two decades. Second, we'll hear about applications in this space, what you can accomplish with imaging now, and examples of and industries that are leveraging this technology. Finally, Greg will share some of the challenges he's overcome in his career. Really, he peppers in some solid career advice throughout this episode. And finally, we'll discuss how events like The Vision Show have impacted his career. More on that in a second. As always, if you want to access any of the resources or links we mentioned in this episode, you can go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 106. And by the way, if you want to hang with Greg and myself in Boston, Massachusetts, preferably over a beer and some lobster rolls, well, you can join us there for A3's Vision Show on October 11th through 13th, 2022. As always, there's a link where you can learn more. That's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Boston 2022. This is the U.S.'s top machine vision and imaging show. If you're a regular listener, you know I've collaborated with A3, the Association for Advancing Automation, quite a bit in the past. And we always get a lot of great interviews from the leaders at these shows. You know it's going to be packed with tech talent and manufacturing leaders. Plus, it's co-located with the Autonomous Mobile Robots and Logistics Conference, taking place that same week in the same spot. That just starts one day earlier. So yeah, Boston is going to be hopping between October 10th and 13th. We'd love to see you there. Head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Boston 2022 for more details and to register today. And even if you're listening to this after October 2022, you can still head to that link or automate.org to hear what else A3 has in store. And with that, it's time to dive into today's episode. We're going to jump right into it. Let's uh, hear where Greg Hollows would be having a drink with us. Five or six years ago, I probably would have said someplace in Germany having a nice spice beer. But being that you asked me this today, uh, in the last many years, I've been uh, having the opportunity to tour a number of our uh, national parks. And mm. the place I'm thinking of would be at Jackson Hole overlooking the Grand Tetons. Uh, there's a lodge there. It's got this huge expanse that looks across and you can see the mountains at sunset. Uh, and it, it's really a beautiful place, quiet, serene, and and uh, very relaxing. So I think it's some place that most people would enjoy. You know, I haven't been to the Tetons before. I've been to Patagonia, which I understand is kind of like the South America. Mm. 
version of it, but I think this is the first time we've gotten a Mountain View answer for where we'd be having our beverages. So we're in Jackson Hole, we're uh, we're looking at the mountains, and, and someone asks you, you know, we talk a lot about robotics, right? I'm manufacturing happy hour, it's easy to visualize, mm-hmm. you know, but how does, you know, what does an optics, imaging, and laser company do? How do you answer that if you're staring at the mountains having a drink with someone? So... The, the real short answer, you want the, the 10 second elevator speech is we, we make machines see, whether it's a robot or a medical device uh, that's doing diagnostics, but it's, it's the taking what's coming off of something you want to look at and making it so that the actual robot or whatever can make a decision, but it's where the eyes of the system. Uh, sometimes it's things that you and I can see visually and sometimes it's things outside of our visible spectrum. But that's where we fit in. And it's amazing when you think of the components that we use and all that. And almost all of them go back to creating a formed image or some sort of data that uh, a, a robot or, or some sort of instrument can use to process how the world works. And and as we get into that interview, by the way, that's a very good mountain style answer. As, uh, as we get into the interview, I'm going to be asking more about imaging, where this technology has gone over the years. But before we get there, I want to ask a little bit about you because you started with Edmund, Edmund, Edmund Optics back in 1998. Tell us how your career began. It was definitely a while ago, and it was uh, an interesting start. When I, when I came out of college, I was, uh, had degrees in chemistry and physics, and I always thought I would use the chemistry degree. That was something that made sense to me uh, because you would go into the newspaper, and I go back that far that was, you would use newspapers to find jobs. Um, the internet really wasn't a thing yet. And... You would see, you could find things for chemists, but you didn't find things for physicists. Um, those were usually things that were uh, left to NASA or to universities, at least the way I thought at the time. And um, it was actually happenstance. Um, I had a, a job placement agency that was working with Edmund to fill some positions. Uh, Edmund Optics at the time also had a uh, consumer division uh, where we did science kits, telescopes, things like that. And they were looking for help over the holiday season. Uh, for technical support, because that's when the peak of the phone calls would come in, because it was a direct marketing company, and people would call in to ask questions and place orders. And uh, I actually got the interview for that part of the job and found out that they had this wonderful industrial division that was about 10 times the size, that consumer group. And they were looking to add more and more technical people, specifically with optics, math, or physics backgrounds, to support the needs of this developing emerging space that had imaging in it as uh, one of its primary things. And that's how I ended up here. Uh, before that, I was actually working retail, uh, trying to figure out how to make a career out of what I was doing. Got it. Got it. So doing retail as a stopgap, did you have other ideas as to what you might wanted to have done? Or why, why did you go that route for your degree to begin with, I guess is my question. Well, I was always interested in engineering. Uh, and when I got through uh, understanding what engineering was about, and I do enjoy engineering, uh, the physics and the chemistry is really what took over and became the highest level of interest to me. Uh, but I, when I got out at the time, um, you know, I had a little too much fun in school and uh, didn't have the best of grades. So it wasn't uh, when you would send in a pile, uh, you'd, your resume ends up in a pile with another hundred for a, you know, a lab chemist job. You're not getting callbacks. Um, so I was lucky enough to get the opportunity here, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I got actually at a crossroads of I was working in retail and working towards management. And uh, there was a management off from the table. And I have to really thank my father-in-law. Um, cause I went to him cause I was about to get married uh, to his daughter, uh, joy. 
And my, my father-in-law and I were talking about what I should do with my life because there was this job at Edmond that was going to pay something. And then there's this management job in retail that was going to pay more. And um, this was a watershed moment for me about wisdom. And I said, what should I do, dad? Is this the situation? And he goes, what are you, what are you stupid? And I go, what do you mean? I thought he was going to say, take the money to support his daughter. He <laughs> says, you went to go college, you get those degrees, you better go get that career. And understanding the difference between a job and a career at that point started to sink in. And um, it was some of the best advice I've ever gotten led to a wonderful career and, and something that's been very fulfilling, both for me personally and for what I do into the industry. And quite honestly, what we do here at Edmond in a lot of cases is changing the world. So it's rather exciting to do. Yeah. Getting that advice around long-term thinking early on. I love that story. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about optics and imaging for for a bit then. What was imaging like Mm -hmm. back when you started there, late 90s, early 2000s? Resolutions at that point were a third of a megapixel. We didn't even calculate them in megapixels. It was uh, 640 by 480 imaging. Getting an image into a computer so you could do something with it um, was difficult. Uh, a lot of things with, uh, you know, capture boards were, were just starting to come into their own. You didn't have to quite write your own drivers at that point. So it made it easier for the customers, but it was still really cumbersome. Um, you know, at, at the time for Edmund, I know we were not completely represented in the market, but we sold more CRT monitors for people to do offline inspection where they would just set up a setup and they would, they would just look at the monitor and make their decisions. Uh, then we sold capture cards by far. So most things are still being done offline, non-digital. Uh, and when you think about the costs, I was just uh, writing in that, uh, something for an article the other day and, and going back to what things cost back then. You're talking for 120th the resolution you get today or 160th of the resolution you get today, spending 80% more than you do today. Yeah. So it was just a different world. It was very expensive, very cumbersome. Um Customers weren't always satisfied, and that was the hard part. They, their expectations weren't always met. Some were met very well, but a lot of them, um, they, they would get it in, and it wasn't what they were hoping for. And it was, uh, I'd say, a difficult time, but it was this kind of awkward adolescence of imaging mm. um, 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, it sounds like a computer hard drive, speed, space, you know, the amount you'd pay for back then, uh, way more for way less, to say the least. So sounds like imaging has had a similar path. Yeah, and it all got to run on Windows 95, which was a joy as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe this will be a little, uh, a, a little less painful now talking about, hey, where are we now? What can you accomplish with imaging now? And maybe can you give us an example that someone listening to this that's on the go or at the gym might be? able to visualize let's i'll put it into the context of something like autonomous vehicles um the ability for cameras and vision systems to be able to see what's going on on the road has been around for a long time i think back to uh universities doing experiments for the darpa projects and all that um uh, they they would have the ability to make these cameras see and be responsive to things but they're being very very controlled and a lot of it is bandwidth um you know when i when i look at where imaging is going, it's actually computer bandwidth and the, the interconnectivity bandwidth that's been the limit, limitation. I know resolution has to keep, get there, but you can get all this resolution out of a camera and all this data rate, but you got to dump it somewhere. And as we've been watching um, the ability for us to get that data off, process it, make a decision, I know it's more complexity than just dumping it into a computer. But where we were at before at 
640 by 480, 30 frames or 25 frames a second to now being able to process the world the way you and I can see it in real time. So the cars can travel 60, 70, 80, 90 miles an hour and make decisions between them. That's kind of where we're at the precipice of is amazing. So you think about the speed at which decision-making can happen and that's software-based as well and, and firmware and FPGAs and all the, the other good things that go on there to, to make that go faster. But the ability to have that enough bandwidth to do all that is is really phenomenal. And you start thinking about there's almost no limit to the amount of resolution we can be putting into cameras. The biggest thing that we're running into, though, is when you think about the optics side and illumination and all that is can I actually get enough good information to the sensor to make it more advantageous to keep going up the resolution chain or having better depth or a wider wave band range to process all this information. That's uh, we're starting to hit some physics limitations Yeah, of what can be done in survey. We have to start attacking problems differently. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like that physics, uh, physicist background is, is coming into play now where you really understand where those limitations are. And I like that example of the cars at the high speeds, because that kind of segues into my next question in let's say manufacturing logistics, the industrial world in general, um, what applications or maybe industries or maybe both are, are prime for vision solutions right now? The, it's a, it's a double-sided question there. there. There's plenty of things that are new that are coming up, but vision is almost everywhere at the same time. And really what you're getting down to is speed and bandwidth and seeing things that you can't see before. Um, you know, we start thinking about how can I, uh, get more speed, more process throughput in a semiconductor application to drive pricing down. That's been going on for years, but the next level of it is how much bigger can I make things on to make it go? The other part of it is too, is, uh, let's, let's, I think one of the bigger areas is attached to things like drones and agriculture, remote sensing, the ability to go out now and take a drone and go visualize a pipeline. Or go visualize something like um, a, a uh, power grid system uh, for inspection. We used to have to go out by helicopter, have people go out and do these things very slowly, being able to see all that is amazing. But you need to have the lightweight capability in the systems, which is the cameras and the optics and everything else that needs to run at the battery systems and all that. That's where we're actually at right now in terms of being able to do things differently. The ability to look at a farm field and tell yourself, how much more irrigation do I need or how much less? Where do I need fertilizer? Where do I have disease or damage so that I can get better sustainability? Those are the things that are actually out there changing the world. And one of the big things for imaging is how do I make it smaller? How do I look at smaller parts of the spectrum? How do I look at expanded parts of the spectrum quickly and easily with high repeatability? And that's really the new things that are emerging, emerging on imaging. Uh, that's going to change the world. When uh, I, I, you've got me thinking about the example of a farm, right? It kind of triggered um, a question I wanted to ask you anyway around how do companies of different shapes and sizes take advantage of this, right? I think it's a conversation that comes up in robotics a lot. Hey, how does a small company leverage robots? You know, who is Vision right for? Does it have to be a large organization? Could it be a small organization that's leveraging it? Uh, I think the question really comes down, can the little guys leverage these type of solutions as well? Yes, um, absolutely. It's, it's, you get the whole range you get in, and it's kind of takes everybody to be involved to really push imaging to the next level where it can be. Um, the big guys obviously have the resources to try something new, but in a lot of cases, they're, they're not always able to pivot 
to something that's unforeseen. The little guys can go out there and try little things, try new things and, and go at it in ways that you haven't thought of before. I can think of a, a farming application. We'll go to the laser side, wait, step away from the imaging side. There uh, is some equipment being developed out there to get weeds out of fields. You visualize with a camera system, the weeds, and then you shoot it with a laser. Oh, wow. I mean, that, 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 and that's, that's really a different way to do things. Um, and big companies can do that and small companies can do that, but it's, it's the entrepreneurial spirit and attacking problems differently that in a lot of cases, the little guys have the nimbleness to go do that. And the nice thing is that the proliferation of all these things has made some of this pretty low cost to do. The little guys, you fail twice on something that's inexpensive. It isn't a big deal, but you don't have all the rigor and structure that makes this, uh, owner's overhead to try new things in a little company, which is great. Fun example of lasering weeds, I should say. What's uh, maybe one of the most unique examples that's come out of some of this entrepreneurial experimentation around these technologies that you can think of? Wow. I don't want to say designer drugs because that uh, <laughs> might sound a little weird, but being able to, being able to validate the proper uh, chemistry for pharmaceuticals for individuals. You know, you need intense amounts of imaging to validate that information. Um, uh, just even the response to COVID, huge. Um, also for the development of the drugs that, that are used to help us out of situations like that. Um, you know, uh, being able to, I think of things like food safety, the ability to see if there's a problem upstream uh, in a food manufacturing plant so it never gets to the consumer. There's a certain amount of that psychological because you don't want to get sued. You want people to trust your brand. There's a certain amount of it that is just, to me, is a, is a relationship that brands have with their customers that we're not going to hurt you and making sure it doesn't happen, which is critical. So, Greg, you've taken us through agriculture, pharmaceuticals, food and beverage. Uh, you've given us a lot of great examples in the space of vision, imaging. I'm going to shift things Back to a topic you brought up a little earlier. You talked about how you made your decision to start your career at Edmund Optics. And I'd, uh, I'd love to ask you a little bit more on that. Um, you've done a lot there at that company. Um, how do you make decisions as to what role or maybe just in general, what you want to do next in your career? It's multifold the answer here. The first thing is uh, Edmund is a uh, Fantastic company for giving you opportunity. Um, you know, we, we like to be on the edge of development of things in growing markets. So that means there's always new things to do and to try. You know, if I was going to give advice to anybody, things I looked back on, some of which I knew what I was doing and some of which was, I didn't know what I was doing, but others did enough to know how to poke me to go the right way was finding role models, asking for advice, um, being willing to fail. Mm-hmm. And learn from it and ask for feedback on it. Say, we're going into a situation where this may not work. How do we at the end do a retrospective and understand how to improve and get better at things? And I'd say the last part was, um, you know, something that quite a few of us here that have been here a long time have developed together is the willingness to have trust with each other so that we can develop self-awareness and know where our strengths and weaknesses are and talk openly about them. So that way we can develop more and get better at what we do like to do and what we're good at. Um, trying to be good at everything is nearly impossible. Trying to figure out how to improve upon the things that make you happy and have value to the organization is really where you should focus. And it's part of that's being willing to let go of things 
and not being self-conscious about it, but you have to have that self-awareness to get there and you have to have people around you that are going to help you through that. So find those groups and work with them to, to make those things happen. I like how you're able to package like four different pieces of career advice in there. You talk about finding role models, <laughs> you talk about uh, trust, self-awareness, being okay with failure. I I'm going to ask for a specific story around that a little bit then. You know, you, you were talking about some of the entrepreneurial things you've seen done with your technologies. Can you share a story maybe about one of your more challenging roles or a challenging situation and, and how you overcame it? Yeah. So, um, I think back to, uh, very end of 2008, um, th those that were in business, especially related to semiconductor and other things, uh, at the end of 2008, know the, the economy was doing this and then it did one of these, uh, late August, early September. And, uh, we, we were just starting to really grow in imaging heavily. And, uh, we had a number of projects that we were working with customers on and, I, at the time, I didn't have enough experience to know that uh, even though it seems like a sure thing, some stuff falls through. The <laughs> yeah. problem is when the wheels come off the economy, everything falls through very quickly. I, I, I hadn't been through, I'd been through the 2001 recession, but I was still three years into my career. I was, I was a tech person on the phones, a little bit more shielded. I, I saw the volume go down, but I didn't realize the interplay of what was going on. So this was my first real... <clears throat> hey, everything's about to change really fast. And you would hear from companies, yes, we were about to do that project, but we put a hold on all spending for the next year. Mind blown. Uh, now what do I do? Uh, so it, the biggest part about that was learning not to take those things for granted. While I might have one or two big customers, we got to be developing things for other customer spaces, other application spaces to offset that so that you mute all the ripple and make it a little bit smoother course that you can project better about how you're going to spend and tolerate and, and, and handle some of the shocks when they come up. Um, and that was a, that was a trial by fire learning experience. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily a lot of people went through it at the same time. So it wasn't like you lose and other people won and the company got very hurt, but, um, it was a lot of learning and it's a lot of stuff now that I try to teach others that are starting their business areas, how to be prepared for um, even though it's tough to spread yourself out a lot when you have a small group trying to nail one or two things down. So I love this, right? Because, you know, at some point or another, whether it's a year, two years, five years down the line, there'll be another recession. So what advice would you give to someone a year or, you know, what do you actually, I know how I'm going to ask this. What do you wish you would have done a year or two before that, given what occurred? I think I've got an idea based on some of your your last answer, but I'd love to hear your summary on this. It's, it's making, it's just like a, a portfolio when you're doing investment, you have risky things, you have stable things, and then you have some things in the middle, uh, big cap, small cap value growth. You need a mixture if you want to weather the storm against everything. And it's really about saying it's very easy to chase one big thing with everything you have. It's really about more spreading it out a little bit. You can't chase 10 things or you'll never get anything done, but it's like if you and your team can handle three things, make sure one is more stable, one has some risk or two have some risk and you have something else in the middle that's your general growth category to be able to, so you have a foundation to push back against when the harder things come. Yeah. You know, I think about Edmund, inventory availability. When things get tough and everybody else cuts inventory, Edmund has inventory. We tend to do a little bit better because of that. Mm. Even though it's tough, 
to have inventory when things are slower. Mm. But it guarantees that when people want things, they can get it, which is a big deal when they're trying to develop things to fight their own way out of difficult times. Given the supply chain world we uh, we are still in, I imagine that strategy came in handy not too long ago. <laughs> so, well, I, I'm going to bring this back maybe to a, a positive spin, right? You shared one of your, your bigger challenges. What's been one of your more rewarding roles and why? More rewarding, probably the most rewarding thing along the way has been having the freedom to take some risk on product development. Um, you, in a lot of cases, you can, and this is something else I learned too, is like you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So going out there and putting out some product that uh, might miss usually leads to things that go pretty well and have some surprising results as well as ones that confirm your original thought process for putting things together. Um, and, and coming up with things like, uh, and, and many companies have came out with products like this, but the ability to do things that are ruggedized, things that can go uh, and be immersed and taking the products that you have now that are your standard things and making it so it's closer to the customizations that customers want and seeing those take off in application spaces you never expected. Mm. That's some of the more exciting things. And seeing, you know, it's it's uh, humbling yet exciting sometimes to do all the research, all the thoughts on the marketing. There's something different that pops out that's more exciting than anything you ever dreamed you were going to get out of it. And seeing where that takes you on the product development cycle is really exciting. You see the way it, it changes how certain applications work, you know, seeing things that are, uh, we've been lucky enough to work on some things that help with um, uh, childhood blindness mm. and seeing the advancements on uh, the products that go in there from where the customer started to where they ended and how it's helping uh, in, in India and some other countries like that. Uh, and I never dreamed when we developed that product that went in there 10 years ago that that would happen. You know, it's 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 rather exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, that's a great example because just – you know, what I, I guess I should ask, what did you originally think that solution was going to do? It ended up helping out with childhood blindness. What was your initial hypothesis? So those products were general purpose products, but we thought they would be used for things like checking levels of uh, fill levels in soda bottles and spark plugs uh, for correctness of position, um, general purpose machine vision. So when you see it being able to be applied to something that you never even thought of, Mm-hmm. And, you know, the feedback is the way this was designed helped us do one, two, three things that we didn't expect. That's really awesome. Yeah. And, and this has been as, as far as kind of our first really vision centric show, imaging centric show, you've given us some great 101, some great examples. You know, as, as we get to the end of our conversation, uh, there always seems to be an event in our industry on the horizon, and you and I are both going to be out at the Vision Show um, in Boston soon, an annual event hosted by A3. I'm curious, you know, because there are a lot of people that are in the middle of their careers, younger career, late career. I'm curious what what have you what you've gotten out of going to shows like this, whether it's technology, whether it's the network, some combination of all of them. I'd love to hear uh, your perspectives on that, or maybe an anecdote to go with it. Um, if you want to be seen as the trusted advisor uh, to the customer base, which is a big goal of us in our imaging group here and at Edmund in general, um, you, you need to be connected to the industry. You need to understand the customer's applications. You need to understand where things are going and headed. The only way you do that is by networking at the shows and gaining understanding of where all the things are at the edges. You know, we talk about macro trends. 
Um, and they're really important, but it's the layer down below that, the enabling technologies that are going to make those macro trends keep moving forward that are critical. And the only way to do that is at events like the Vision Show. Um, I think of the Vision Show and how it's evolved over the years with the collaborative products groups coming in, uh, things along those lines. You're seeing it becoming, going from where it was 25 years ago, which was here's a couple component providers showing off their wares to it's turning into more integrated solutions that are going into specific spaces that are showing up and demonstrating now about how they're evolving and changing the world and making things uh, more cost-effective, more efficient, better for the end user, solving problems of the world that couldn't be done before. And that only happens at events like the Vision Show. I think it's pretty cool that it's being integrated with the autonomous mobile robots show as well. I think there's a lot of, there's enough Venn diagram overlap there to make that hyper relevant to have those both going on at the same time. I guess like those areas didn't overlap 10 years ago, Mm. but now they are. And and you're seeing other areas starting to move in too. So my feeling is over the next decade, we're going to see even more events and activities like that starting to overlap and becoming joined into what you, what is the vision show? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to, I know it won't be a mountain view there, but a Harbor view and a cold beer at that point. Um, but, uh, I'm sure we'll get to do that in the near future. As we get to the end of today's conversation, is there anything you wish I would have asked you that we haven't brought up? The, the only thing we really didn't cover or talk about in detail is where are things going to be 20, 30 years out? Ooh, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear your perspective on this one. So, Geopolitical issues aside, let's assume all that stuff sorts itself out. Um, what I really see, um, you know, we had Dr. Kopp, who a number of year, years ago come to the uh, A3 forum and speak about the future of technology and he's a futurist. And when you start really thinking about what could be there with um, imaging and sensing in our clothing, in our appliances, you're already starting to see that in your refrigerator or restocks things. Oh, you're out of milk and all that. But I'm talking like in your bathroom to do medical sensing and testing, um, to be able to see, like have cameras around us that will be able to sense if the pigment in your skin is off or your blood flow is down without it being invasive, without you having to do it. Um, those things are going to be a part of it. Um, I also believe that vision is going to help bring the automation of life. You know, there, there's the scary end of it, like iRobot, you know, Asimov's book and, and, and the movie, that sort of thing. But I'm thinking more like having automation and robots in our home working around us because vision's making them be able to collaborate with us, not hurt us, but help us. Um, it's going to be a powerful part of what happens over the next 20 years. Um, I think that autonomous vehicles, the promise of where they could be, you know, I wonder if my grandchildren will get a driver's license. Will they need car insurance? Will they be red lights? If those sorts of, think of those things that we go through today that may not exist in 20 years. It's not that far off. Um, and anybody who goes, you know, and says, ah, that's not possible. How long did it take for landlines to get cut off and cell phones to take over? You know, 10 years, eight years. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Some five to 10. Well, and think about too, how many cameras are in your life. If you go back to when the first smartphone came out, I think it was about 13, 14 years ago, you had almost no cameras in your house outside. If you had a point shoot camera or a photographic camera of some sort that was probably filmed. In your pocket right now, you probably carry four cameras in your pocket. You probably have about eight cameras on you when you take your computer with you. And if you've got three people in your house, you multiply by three. And that doesn't include everything else that's around you. When you think of uh, the communication protocols that are going to be done with LEDs and visible lights in your home, 
um, to just communicate between different devices. I mean, think about all this and this stuff's going to happen like that. It's going to be a matter of years, not decades for all the stuff to come into place. And it's going to put out the pasture, a number of things that we utilize today that we think are ubiquitous and will never go away that our grandchildren won't even know existed. Ask a millennial to dial a rotary phone. (laughs) (laughs) So I am a millennial and I do know how to dial a rotary phone. We had one growing up, but uh, it it did go the way of the Buffalo after a while. So, uh, but nevertheless, I did, I did get that experience just in time. I love that answer. Um, I love that question that you created because I normally ask people, what do you see three to five years down the line? But you gave us like the 20 to 30 year outlook. And uh, like you said, when some of these things come up, they're going to go really, really fast. So it'll be interesting to see what those technologies are on that timeline. Well, the question we should all be asking, if, if that's where we're going on the 20 year timeline, what do you need to be doing in three to five years to be relevant in 20? Yeah. And we'll be answering that question uh, at the Vision Show as well. I'll be having more conversations like this while we're out there. So I'm looking forward to hearing people's perspectives, whether it's over uh, an interview like this or over a beer at the happy hours. We'll see. uh, We'll see what comes up. So as uh, as we wrap up today's conversation, what's the best way to connect with you, Greg, and Edmund Optics? Well, the best way to connect with Edmund... um... Well, there's a lot of ways. Ed, Edmund is a direct marketing company as well, and we have lots of avenues and conduits. Uh, for the company in general, I mean, um, we we have like 24-6, 24-7 support in some cases. So always be able to reach out to us and get a live person, whether it's via chat, email, phone, um, whatever mechanism that you like. And then for me personally, um, email is usually the best. Uh, and uh, I'm sure my contact info is in there. Texting is always good. Uh, cause the phone is always with me and always tethered. So, uh, it's, it's a little bit more, uh, like right in front of your face than even the email is. That's usually the best way to go. Excellent. And I'll have a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And with that, Greg, I just want to say thanks so much for jumping on today's show. It was a pleasure. Thank I was really glad to be here. Hey, thank you for listening. If you want to access any of the resources we mentioned in today's episode, make sure you go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 106. And by the way, I'll say it one more time. If you want to hang with us in Boston, myself, Greg, and plenty other manufacturing leaders, well, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Boston 2022 to get more details and register today for the Vision Show co-located with the Autonomous Mobile Robots and Logistics Conference taking place between October 10th and 13th, 2022. Even if you listen to this episode after those dates, well, still go to that link anyway. We're always doing something with A3 or head to automate.org to hear what else they have up their sleeve. We hope to see you there. It is the top vision show in the country, and we would love to have a beer and some lobster rolls with you in Boston this October. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Boston 2022. And with that, that's it for this week. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you here next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.